Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's the Wonky Show. It's been Wonkfest this week and we've got highlights on everything from universities building back better to bridging the digital divide, what care means in a university and what your socks say about your job. It's all coming up. The digital divide goes hand in hand with that. So we've seen uh, a massive issue within our black student population um, with access to internet, access to devices, access to spaces where they can work quietly. Travelling onto campus was was a real kind of aging grace for Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. Now, this week has been Wonkfest, our festival of higher education, and as a result, there's not been the time to record our usual format show. But the good news is we've got some highlights from day one of the event. Towards the end of the day, I met up with Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and friend of the show and solicitor to the stars, Smita Jamdar from Shakespeare Martineau, where we caught up on what we'd seen and heard. Let's have a listen. So I think overall, my big highlight was just, I loved so much feeling genuinely engaged back with the sector again, because personally, I've missed conferencing i've missed meeting people i've missed hearing from all the sort of different voices that you come across when you're going to sector events so the whole thing was just a fantastic philip and raised my spirits i think in terms of um the day itself what I, i attended three or four very different sessions but what really struck me was for just how positive people are and that was also incredibly you know heartening and and infectious you kind of felt the energy even though it's quite um as you say a very different environment to the one we normally do this in um i think i think it's been a weird experience to be in my role so i'm vice president higher education at the national union of students and um i i think there's been a mixture of feelings i think it's been an unconventional year to be a student representative let alone a student or or just anybody trying to navigate a pandemic in whatever field that they're in but i think what has been really really important and i'll highlight two things normally i go with three but i'll do two to be succinct um the first thing that i would say is the importance of education at of every form and has been such a big learning point um over this past year i mean nobody really knew how to navigate a pandemic before nobody really knew what it would mean and how it would change our lives and i think in every aspect we've seen the importance of both formal education and informal education and i think that has really bridged the gap in really recognizing everybody's stake in being able to to manage this pandemic but actually move forward in rethinking how we did things why we did things and what the purpose of what we were doing 
um, was. So, so I think education has been a really, really important part of this. But actually, a big learning that um, has come out of the pandemic is just the importance of how much we prioritise and making sure that university, making sure that education is a space that everybody, especially the most vulnerable students and staff in our community, um, can thrive in and can be able to engage with in different ways. And we've had to move things in um, in a different direction. We've gone to online teaching. We haven't had as much of a physical presence as we traditionally would have. But seeing how that has meant that different groups of students, staff and people in our sector have been able to adjust and in some cases thrive and in some cases have had to really reckon with some of the system, the systemic failures um, the system has um, already built in, I think has been a massive, massive learning curve. And um, just to end, I think it's really important that when I think about Build Back Higher, um, I think it's going to be really important that we rethink what the traditional is, we rethink how we do things and actually I think now is the time more than ever to be a bit more risky um, and think about how we can do things in new, better and innovative ways. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a baptismal fire for all of us. But I think there's lots of learnings and lots of things that we can do going forward that can actually be better and not just patchwork fixes that we've seen in the past. Jim, your, high, your, your key takeaway from the day so far? I am quite cynical, you know, believe it or not. <laughs> you, you, you surprised us. <laughs> and, um, I've, you know, I've read some of Simone's stuff, both on the Leeds University's website and on the stuff that Simone has written for us on the site, yeah? And, um, you know, a lot of it has washed over me. But, but, but being in that session this morning, very first session this morning, first speaker that we had on, was the first time, um, and, you know, neither Simone nor Leeds nor Vice-Chancellors generally should take this the wrong way, but it was the first time I believed it, you know, this stuff about um, the sort of future that we might be able to have by intelligently and carefully blending the very best of the things that we've done that we had to do during the pandemic, kind of, you know, electronically and online and the sort of in-person experiences that we're all going to want. Now, you know, I still am of the view, here we are still at five o'clock, having been in that session this morning, being very worried about setting ourselves up to deliver lots and lots of genuinely more expensive teaching and learning. Because the thing about lectures is they're cheap. <laughs> yeah, per head, 500 people for an hour of teaching, that's... You know, there's an efficiency to that. And, and, and I always worry about discussions in higher education, in teaching and learning gem specifically and in higher education generally that aren't scalable. But, but, you know, in some ways we can save the detail and the scaling for another day. The, 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 the positivity and, you know, a sense of, you know, genuine excitement about where we could be going over the next few years as a result, as I say, of fusing some of this emergency learning that we've done over the past year uh, with this desire that we will all have to kind of learn and get back in rooms together and so on, I thought was exciting. And as I say, set us up for what has certainly for me been a surprisingly positive day. Well, what I want is for them to have a sense of purpose and to understand the role they can play. And for that, they need to have a sense of purpose while they're at university and a sense of belonging with the group. So when students from different backgrounds who may be the first in their families or have things to bring to the table because of their cultural background where they grew up, if they are an active part of the group and if they can learn together 
with others and express themselves and really feel like they're making a difference also for the learning and the group work of others, um, then I think they'll be able to be those, those global citizens we want them to be. And I think digital literacy, it's a bit overrated. It becomes that sort of scary thing. You need to understand all the nuts and bolts and, and, and bytes and, and coding and programming. There are very few people who actually need to know that. The, the group of users is much larger. And if you also, if you look at online delivery, there are some professors who hardly know how to turn on their video camera or have an iPhone on a wobbly tripod, but who are great at teaching in an online environment. So what we need is technicians in the universities and a, and a small group of our future global leaders who actually understand how to develop the technology. But we need to make it in such a way that it can be used by large parts of the teachers, the learners, but also the global population. We need to make sure that everybody at some point has access to digital technology and then becomes super user friendly, which again, also, is, is it's, it's a multidisciplinary uh, trade, trade because you need also people from the humanities and social sciences who understand how different cultures, people with different literally, literacy skills can use digital technology. Because there's also a large part of the global population with, with very low numerical and reading skills, numerical and reading literacy. And we need to be able to, for them also to access digital technology. Just think about how we can use it in the lowest threshold way it becomes really easily accessible. And I didn't need to do much to be in this meeting today. Your technical team helped me. All I needed to do was click on something and here I am. <laughs> so I don't think we need to make the entire global population dig digitally literate to make sure they can all benefit from learning and teaching um, and being part of, of, um, yeah, of a new generation that actually can tackle the global challenges. Uh, what were you, you were in the uh, care and university of communities, Jim, yeah. weren't you? Because you, you helped put that session together. And that was, I thought, really, um, again, really interesting because we had uh, real life students, <laughs> for, for one. Um, but also, again, you know, real uh, kind of human human experience. What what was the takeaway from there for you? Well, do you know what? I mean, I have become, you know, borderline obsessed. And, you know, I think certainly Smita will understand what I'm getting at here by this kind of vague, amorphous question about what university's duty of care is. And it does matter because, you know, we don't want universities to fail in that duty. And if... Uh, universities do fail in that duty. We want students to feel empowered to be able to raise that and get redress and so on. You know, th there is a duty of care somewhere and, it, you know, it's not written down, it's hard to define and so on. What, of course, is fascinating about a session like that, where you put together people as diverse as, you know, uh, a university provost and a management consultant and a student union president and someone from a charity and fascinatingly someone from a international aid from the international aid sector you know that folk works on safeguarding is as usual i didn't get the answer i wanted you know i didn't come out of the hour where someone had written down well here's what the university duty of care is of course i didn't but what i did get was a real sense i think of two things one the importance of driving the value of caring for each other through an organisation, both in its policies and its leadership and, and its actions and, you know, the way everyone behaves at kind of system level right throughout an organisation or a community and so on. But also related to that, just how important it is to create a caring environment 
that is as much about what, if you like, policies and leaders do, but is just as much about what the community is encouraged to do for each other. And I'm going to start off just by sharing a kind of idea about what do we we even mean when we're talking about care? Because we kind of we talk about it as a noun, we talk about it as a verb, we have different understandings of the word. And just really acknowledging that it's not a word that we really use much in universities. It's not we don't even really talk about it when we talk about student well-being or staff well-being. We use well-being rather than care. The word care, we associate more with things like child care or social care or healthcare. And what struck me is that when we look at those kind of words, what we're looking at is an association of care with groups that we consider to be vulnerable. So the idea of people that are vulnerable as opposed to the idea that other people are not vulnerable. And that what we're doing with those kind of care systems, if you like, is providing what those people need, that the, the needs that they can't fulfill themselves. And that's what we've just been hearing about is how, you know, how do, how do universities get better at doing that? And what I'm saying is that actually it's not just these groups of people who are vulnerable. We need to think about care a bit more widely than that. Because I think traditionally mainstream thinking within universities is that, we, you know, as a community of, of people, we're, not, we're people that are, are whole and robust and not weak or broken, not vulnerable. And therefore, this idea is, is not of care is not relevant. It's relevant only to a few subsets of people. And I would challenge that and say that if we're doing the core business of, of, of learning, discovery, enterprise, then human beings doing that stuff are, by definition, by nature, vulnerable. So if we think about when we're learning what it feels like to not know stuff, to not understand things, to feel confused, to get stuff wrong, like all of that makes us vulnerable. If you think about uh, colleagues that are in research, that are taking risks, that are getting rejected from things, that are failing in what they're doing, all of that makes us vulnerable. And people that are involved in enterprise and innovation and change projects literally have all of that going on. So there is vulnerability in the core activity of what universities are about. And yet we don't think of ourselves as vulnerable and we don't think of care as relevant. And that's what I think needs to shift. Where I get anxious is where the question mark is around the legal duty of care. And the fact that that's ambiguous Uh, can lead to some quite defensive behaviour. It can lead to people worried that if they do certain things, they will assume a duty of care, which is a big risk from a legal perspective. But also that 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 you know, if they get it wrong, um, you know, if they if they do their best but they get it wrong, are they then going to be penalised for it? So sometimes, you know, the temptation is to back off. And I think what Joanna fed back to me from that session was exactly as you've said. It was the willingness to sort of move beyond that very narrow interpretation of the legal duty of care and think constructively about how do we get our communities working better together to support each other. And um, one of the things she mentioned, which I thought sounded a fantastic idea, was the the sort of provost commission at Exeter, where you're actually proactively encouraging people to have discussions about contentious issues, which without which we're never going to move forward on any of those issues. But if you don't create those spaces to have them, then they happen in all sorts of really negative um, ways. So it's something that, you know, I've been reading a lot about in other contexts, you know, the the idea of campus conversations and things like that. So it was, it was interesting to see a sort of model of it, you know, um, it being rolled out. And, 
you know, hopefully it will have the desired effect of helping people reach a consensus on these very difficult issues. The Provost Commission, which I chair, has been a vehicle that we've been we've used successfully to do this across a range of inclusion and ultimately mental health issues. So the Provost Commission was set up in May 2018 after a particularly appalling incident of misogynist and racist social media. The Commission was a very important symbol to the university and to the outside world that this incident in no way represented the university or its values. So the Provost Commission has become an open forum for staff and students where we meet publicly to scrutinise, test and challenge our inclusion work to ensure our community is an open, safe and welcoming environment for all. It's got representatives from across our three campuses, students, levels of study, staff and grades and from all of our inclusion networks. And it's been really helpful during the, uh, the pandemic to have this existing network to build on trust and open dialogue so that we can be honest and challenge each other. We've had very difficult conversations, particularly around external matters such as the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter and internal freedom of speech issues and our Black awarding gap. We've also held a number of extraordinary Provost Commission sessions called for by our community, including a recent one to look specifically at the issue of gender-based violence. So this caused us to set up our new gender safety group. So the Provost Commission collectively has defined seven priorities for our inclusion strategy, recruitment, recognition and reward, education, curriculum and success for all, creating an inclusive culture, norms and values, including how we might counter online harms, community and involvement, monitoring and evaluation, HR policies, training, development and redress, and research. So in addition, over the past year, we've expanded our work. We are working in greater partnership with our Students Guild, who've been running regular open town hall meetings led by the Vice President Welfare and Diversity, the focus na nature of each session on well-being, uh, mature students, postgraduate students has ensured that we're hearing from communities that can have fainter voices. Um, we're empowering our students to make change. So after discussion with a particular student group, we launched a £25,000 anti-racism student fund to support student-led projects and initiatives. The fund is administered by our Education Institute. It's been a really successful way to engage our student community, and we're now looking to expand this to include a further fund to support student-led uh, initiatives focusing on gender-based violence. So the, the most obvious one, I think, that we found is within our black student population. Now, our university has one of the worst black attainment gaps, um, I think the worst black attainment gap, in fact, in the entire country. Sorry, Christchurch, calling you out there, but that is what it is. And we're working very hard on closing that gap. However, the digital divide goes hand in hand with that. So we've seen uh, a massive issue within our black student population um, with access to internet, access to devices, access to spaces where they can work quietly, Travelling onto campus was, was a real kind of saving grace for our students pre-pandemic. And when that was, was no longer an option or when that option was made much more difficult to travel outside of particularly the London area, which is where most of our students commute from, um, that created a huge issue within the, well, not just attainment, but actually in terms of community and culture and everything else that kind of comes with university. I guess the second one I want to speak about 
those uh, so we're mixing with this as well with our students from low socioeconomic, no socioeconomic backgrounds so we are a WP organization we are one in participation at the core of what Christchurch does it is supporting those who ordinarily wouldn't be going to university myself included I was a mature student first of you know first generation to go to university with a child at the time as well the three-month-old baby that's what Christchurch is there for to support those students who couldn't find a place before that and then support them all the way through this pandemic has hit us really really hard because we basically get all of those groups are already struggling in society are already marginalized in society and already have massive inequalities running through everything that they do and the pandemic just heightened that tenfold now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he so one of the issues du jour is the issue of a commuting university. What are we doing for commuting students? Well, um, one of the biggest reforms in the 19th century was to set up a commuter university. Um, what originally was called the University of London, we know it now as University College London. And it was set up explicitly to be a commuter university because the vices of the residential university, Oxford and Cambridge, were so obvious to everyone that you wanted to avoid that at all costs. So... Um, the pitch comes in a, a staged letter to the Times from Thomas Campbell to Lord Broome, in which he sets out a kind of prospectus for a university. He goes on to, to, to embellish it some more. But the prospectus is, is pretty clear that there's a group of people who are not being catered for in the higher education sector, and they are the middling rich. This is the group we need to go after, he says. These are the people who have some money. Uh, can't afford the expense of sending their uh, kids, uh, their sons. Uh, sadly, uh, all the stuff is about sons. We can't afford the expense of sending our sons off to university. It will cost you far too much. Uh, so we need something for them to stay at home and commute to university. Now, Campbell works this all out. He works out how many middling rich families are within a two-hour walk of UCL. Uh, uh, so if he puts it in Bloomsbury, he knows how many people, you know, what his catchment is. Um, he sets out what might happen to them so that go, they'll come, they'll have breakfast early at home, uh, they'll come in for several hours, uh, receive instruction, they can uh, stay in the university in that time, and then they'll go home again, uh, always in the hours of daylight, uh, to their parents' houses where the parents will be in charge of them. So, and he says in the letter, their parents might know how every minute of every day of their life was employed. So the idea that parents are completely in charge, uh, in the original um, sense of the perspectives of the place, he, he imagines a weekly report going home with the students uh, to show what they've done during that week. And the idea is, is to save vast amounts of money uh, for uh, families that might have a couple of thousand pounds a year income, uh, and this won't be ruinous. Uh, it won't be ruinous in terms of the cost, but also it won't be ruinous in terms of sending your son away where you have no idea what they're doing for eight weeks, uh, and all that you might get is bills sent back um, from uh, their ruinous life in Oxford or Cambridge. So you've got much more control of them. It's also really important because what you do on Sunday is your decision. So it doesn't matter what church you go to because it's not the University of London's problem which church you go to on Sunday. So it can avoid the question of religious tests because it's not in charge of your morality. So it doesn't matter to them how you pray. 
um, you can get on and do it. So as far as they're concerned, that gets them out of the problem about dissenters, gets them the problem about uh, Jews. They're in a position where it that's not their problem. So if you can come and study the instruction, your parents are going to look after your morality. That's not our job. So they won't teach religion because there's no need for you to be taught religion because you'll be going to the you know the church of your choice. Um, you won't need to get it from us. Uh, it's full of really um, up-to-date ideas. So in order to get it going, um, they need uh, to set up a company. So it's set up a, a company and it's supposed to have subscribers. And the good news about being a subscriber is that you pay your £100 and then you can send a student. So as a shareholder, you get a guaranteed place at university for your son. Uh, as a kind of recompense for that. So that's an interesting prospect. Um, uh, uh, would have been good for the new College of the Humanities if they'd gone for that route. Um, so you can set it up. The uh, professoriate aren't going to be funded out of um, endowments. They're just going to collect the student fees. So they're going to be paid out of the student fees. Uh, so that's how they're going to get funded. They're going to get spread across lots more uh, disciplines. And to mark the whole thing off, um, it emerges very quickly that what they want to do is have much more open study. Uh, Campbell goes on a trip to Berlin to look at the new university there. Uh, he receives correspondence about how the University of Virginia is set up. So he wants to have a much more elective system. Students can study whatever they want. He brings in professors in all sorts of practical subjects. So it's not just learning the classics. Uh, and so he sets up a, a, a different kind of understanding of how that should be. Pretty soon, there's a reaction. Because how can this place uh, be saying it's going to offer a degree if there's no religious instruction, if no one has a sense of the morals of, of, the, of the men that have passed through it? So the kind of reactionary uh, approaches, the Tories set up their own campaign to set up a college uh, and they get the king's support, which is why King's College um, gets to be set up in opposition to the University of London. And it sets up to do pretty much the same kind of thing, commuting students, um, a wider range of uh, subjects, but with religious education at, at its heart. So they want to be a different kind of setup, but within the sphere of the Church of England, because that's important to them. So the two colleges get off um, issuing certificates because they don't have degree awarding powers, because Parliament won't award degree awarding powers to um, uh, UCL, as we as we know it now. Uh, and so eventually the compromise comes in 1836 that the University of London is set up as a kind of effectively a government department to award degrees. So if you were looking for an exciting parallel with the OFS. Uh, the OFS validation powers uh, to set up and, and approve colleges that come to it and say, can, can we have a degrees? You could say, well, there's a parallel in 1836 in terms of the original University of London. What's interesting, of course, is the University of London has to say what's in the degree. So that takes away some of the reforming uh, zeal of, of what had been at UCL because they now have to conform to this, this new uh, BA degree that the University of London puts together. But from that... Springs A, the ability for someone to be taught at a college that isn't part of uh, the direct University of London. So that enables places all over the country and in turn all over the empire to teach the University of London degree. Uh, but it also means the University of London can start to think about other subjects. So it starts to think, well, what would it look like to have a, just a science degree? Uh, and so they can start to think about that. And so there's a petition to have a, the first science degree. They can start to think about what it would look like. Um, there's a petition to set up a social science degree. So they can start to expand the range of subjects uh, that come into the university and specialisms can develop from there. 
Now, on the afternoon of day one of Wonkfest, there was lots to take in. Let's dive back in. So, yeah, skipping skipping on to the next, uh, which one, where, where did you go then after, for the lunchtime slot? Um, the, the It ain't what you do, with the, it's, it's the way you do it, or, or High Street, where, where were you both? I was in the flexing one, so it ain't what you do, it's the way that you flex it. So um, it was a, a session which was basically looking at um, the possibility of, well, looking at how things have had to flex over the last 12 months across a range of areas of university life, culture, staff, uh, technology, teaching and learning, and what we might do to um, build that flexibility in for the long, longer term. You know, do we need to and, and what we would do about it? And again, as always, actually, what I thought was it wasn't so much the detail of what we were discussing. It was some of the underlying principles that they were talking about. And there were just a couple which really, really struck out, stuck out to me. The first was whether we like it, the message that was coming from all the speakers was whether we like it or not, the world is now more uncertain. Not just We're not just talking about, you know, getting to the end of the pandemic and then it'll all be back to what we knew. Um, it is inherently more uncertain than we've ever known it. And therefore, developing a capacity to be flexible irrespective of what form the flexibility takes, but being able to be flexible and constantly evolve is more important than ever. So I thought that was just, it was just a useful framing thing that stop looking at it from the narrow perspective of what do we do to respond to the pandemic and just start seeing it. This is the you know awful expression. This is normal now. This is what it's going to be like one way or another forever. I don't mean sitting on, on the other side of a screen, but that. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. the second point, which kind of slightly contradicted that, but it was really a kind of massive you know, light bulb moment for me was, have we actually really experienced flexibility over the life of the pandemic? Haven't we really just moved to something different? So what happened was we were all physically on campus one day and then we were all remote. And I know there's been a bit of toing and froing and sometimes you're on campus and some you're, sometimes you're out, but really embracing the idea of hybrid blended learning hasn't happened yet. We're going to, that's the next stage. It's It's kind of not the either or it's is genuinely blended and I again it thinking about it from my own perspective of working from home versus having a choice of whether to go into the office or whether to carry on working from home and what difference that will make and how we need to support people to embrace those choices and feel confident about those choices I thought that was um, also quite a a real sort of light bulb moment. We're driven to working differently but we haven't been truly flexible as yet I think stand some stuff have to be on campus and those that didn't need to couldn't um, as yet we haven't dealt with the nuances of individual preferences roles that could be undertaken remotely or in person and the challenges of managing collaboration between some staff that are on campus and some that are not as Osama said the zoomers and the rumors our uh, experience is that we have learned that many activities particularly university level meetings training and development activity wonkfest uh, have worked exceptionally well if not better remotely, but the benefits are driven by everyone's using the same platform. Everyone's able to contribute in their own private space, ideally, and have they have an equal opportunity to participate. So mixing this up and moving to a more blended or hybrid approach will bring new challenges that requ- does require technology. It also requires physical space, but it also requires competencies that will need time and investment to develop. My second thought is that the approach to flexibility within any institution needs to be driven by the nature of that organization's academic mission and the physical and digital kind of geography of the institution. So we're based in central London. That affects our ambitions for flexibility going forward. Our location presents challenges for where staff are able to live and the nature of their commute. But we also have pressure on our space and realizing extra space for research and teaching could bring benefits. 
not least because our research requires significant amounts of physical space. And our educational officer also based on the opportunity for students to collaborate with researchers and participate in research at all levels. Um, and in many cases, our teaching uh, requires practical experience in labs or in, or in wards. So different institutions will have different needs, different aspirations for growth of digital learning, different needs to be embedded in certain locations or embedded in certain communities, and different feedback from students and staff over the past years of, year, year of experiences. And that should be what drives the approach to flexible work arrangements going forward. Um, Jim, on the, on the high streets, what happened there? Yeah, um, well, uh, Mark, you'll know that earlier on in the week, I um, wonk cornered. I know you don't like me converting nouns into verbs. I wonk cornered. Um, <laughs> let's not use the actual example. <laughs> I wonk cornered the Tony Blair um, Global Policy Institute uh, report that Blair had written with Adonis on, um, you know, the uh, education recovery, the other education recovery project that's on at the moment. Um, and, you know, one of the things he says in there is, you know, big, classic, big, bold, hairy goal. Towns with a population of 80,000 or more that haven't got a university ought to have one. And do you know what? That really matters at the moment to places like, I don't know, oh, uh, Watford. <laughs> because, you know, massive shopping centre with a bro- with a closed John Lewis at one end and a closed Debenhams this at the other. This is where Jim is right. He's talking about... Yeah, I'm right now in Watford. And, you know, endless opportunities to vape. That's it. You know, th- th- this is a town with serious, really serious challenges now. And, you know, in many ways, through this kind of live case study of the stuff they've been doing at Kingston, um, a really good session to watch back, I think, because, again, it's one of those kind of synapses uh, going off sessions, which, which gives you a sense, I think, of some of the ways in which universities can go beyond a kind of civic engagement, which is about um, talking about the economic benefits of the supply chain and of student migration and goes beyond what I'd call the kind of annual event where boffins from STEM departments go and run experiments in a shopping centre with a local newspaper on hand, you know, and then they go back to their offices for the rest of the year and gets properly into what you can do when you deliver some of your infrastructure, both in partnership and for the place where you are or the places where you are. And, you know, really got into, not in a way that's instantly recreatable or, in you know, not everyone would be able to run a, a project d- directly of that sort, but really got into some of the kind of, you know, the interesting questions that come up around, you know, access to facilities and, and how you share facilities with a community and, you know, what some of the um, you know, issues then become around how you, how you share those and so on. So, you know, certainly anyone that is thinking about the kind of relationship with the community, this civic work, and as I say, getting it beyond kind of annual reports and, you know, experiments with boffins once a year. Well, the, the community wanted to be able to enjoy the amenities of the university building. So, um so we had lots of consultations with the community uh, as well as in uh, internally within the university and ended up with um, a building which becomes more of a library as you go up it. But um, the first two floors you wouldn't recognize as a library. In fact, there are no turnstiles in the building. So the community has um, can go anywhere they want in the building. But 
it naturally zones itself to be quieter and more of a traditional library as you move up the building. So the first floor is a cafe, there's a theater um, with about 80 seats, there's a huge courtyard uh, with benches in it. Um, and then if you go up one floor, there is then um, sort of soft seating and general seating. Uh, and as you move up, you, get, you end up with stacks as well as um, gardens, which are um, placed with inside the building. So you see, when the building opened, and it was pre-pandemic, we just got there weeks before the first lockdown. Um, yeah, the cafe on the ground floor was packed with the community, actually. <laughs> so there's a second um, cafe that's uh, on the rooftop. Um, which again is um, has more students and staff in it, but but that ground floor is really um, really uh, uh, really community oriented, and and um, once we come out of the pandemic and uh, we can do um, we can get together again physically, you know, I fully expect the theater and the courtyard and the other spaces to be used by the community as well. It's also a very prominent site in Kingston, so uh, it does a huge space. Yeah, it's a huge building. Yeah, it's really in a very prominent place. It's it's across from uh, Surrey County Council. Um, it's near the courts. It's near the college. It's the sort of entry to the downtown. So it's a it's really a landmark. Um, it, it's physically a landmark. And also there was the uh, when it was designed, it's very generous spatially. So um, and there's ample landscaping. In fact, we got rid of a car park that was in front of the adjacent building. Uh, and turn that into a welcoming green space. That green space comes up the outside of the building to link that together. So there's a, um, a lot of uh, parking for bicycles. Uh, there's the uh, cycle path for the town that um, comes right in front of the building. So there's a lot of, um, it really knits itself um, into the community um, physically, but also programmatically. And then there's some quirks in it. So we decided to put a dance studios in a library um, that's, uh, I mean, a theater is bad enough in terms of, you know, acoustic provision. It's not what you would expect, is it? Really? Uh, it's not what you'd expect. But, no. but, you know, that was part of the kind of, the architects got very excited about this, that we were, you know, we were talking about the mind and the body. You know, how many people, even within the university, would know we have a dance program, we have a theater program, that, you know, these are, this is part of who we are, that learning and dance is very different than learning in law or learning in engineering. And that, um, and we wanted to make that visible. I actually just wanted to pick up um, on a point that Susie's made in the chat about being feeling depressed when Jim reminded us all that HE was basically just a sorting hat for employment, because I did very much enjoy Jim's session on forecasting and prediction. But it, it's, and it, and it included a theme that has come up in a lot of the sessions that I attended today, which is all about what is value in higher education? What is the value of higher education? What's value for money? What is the value of universities? And actually, I felt that with a bit of time to reflect on some of the things we've heard today, including some of the stuff like, you know, the high street, we could start to articulate a much broader concept of value for universities, of universities. And I really wish that that was a project we could take forward, you know, because to me, it does feel like if you're not careful, it, you know, government does view HE as a sorting hat for employment. That's all it is, really. And actually, it's a very expensive way of doing that. There are cheaper ways they think of doing it. 
But when you think through the pandemic, all the wonderful things universities have done for their communities, all the things they're capable of doing through their research, we need to bring that whole thing together and start to sell the wider value um, proposition rather than allowing it to be divided up into extremely reductive and depressing concepts like sorting hats. Let us never hear that again, Jim. I think it's really difficult with belonging because is it a political issue? Is it a well-being issue? Where does this sit? Does it sit? Does it sit in strategy? Does it sit in well-being? Does it sit operationally? Um, and I also challenge anyone to define what belonging is to me because actually I don't really feel many people working in and outside the university can do that like is it that there are people who look like me on campus is it that I have ownership of the space of democratic decisions is it academic success is it feeling safe that's something that's come up a lot this year um is it being told that you belong um I mean it took me five years two degrees and 18 months of being an officer before I felt that I belonged to Exeter um so much so that you know I had to be a VP for a year before I ran as president um I think a lot of um, conversations I have with presidents, particularly presidents who are of a demographic that's not rep- like overrepresented on their campus. Um, you know, there's a sort of attitude of like, I'm not like you, so I don't belong here. Um, my approach was always like, well, I'm not like you, but I am here. So you've got to make some room for me. Um, and I think that 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 focus on like making room is something that when I've spoken to students they often feel that in trying to make students belong it just makes people feel like they belong less so um I was talking to to a diversity fame diversity rep um last week and she made a really um valiant point that about me actually and she said the thing is Sunday is you know you're you're a care leaver working class you know you're not an Exeter student but you are a you are one of the non-belonging people who has a space of belonging as a person who doesn't belong i.e you are elevated as an example of someone who doesn't belong but what about all the people who don't belong who don't reach that who don't become guild president what about the people who don't um you know we get told that to be a successful wp student to be a successful care leaver you need to end up like sunday the poster girl of not belonging at Exeter university and if you don't fit into this little neat carved out space of not belonging on campus you you belong even less right and as she was saying this to me i was like do you know what she's actually she's completely right we do have our schemes um in freshers week we had we used to have a scheme where we would give care leavers a t-shirt with exeter on it <laughs> and be like here you go you belong here um or we would give them vouchers for club nights um and i actually think that in a lot of our belong in a lot of the movements around trying to create belonging on campus we ostracize people so one of the pieces of work that i did last year was that i changed the vouchers the club night vouchers and um the you know the, the voucher that they get given and we changed it to just a cash bursary and that was really important uh, to me that students got given a cash bursary instead of vouchers because when you turn around to a student and say you're a care leader and to make you feel that you belong we're going to let you get into that club for free well what if that what if the most important thing to that care leader is 
going to Wilkinson's and buying things that make their room comfortable and and making you know settling down in their dorms every single person the reason we can't define belonging and the reason that no one in or outside the university can define it to me is because belonging looks different to everyone so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything going on in ukhe do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services so thanks very much to everyone that contributed to Wonkfest, everyone at team wonky that makes the show happen behind the scenes and until next week stay wonky tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.